Hello, everyone. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. Today is October 4th, and this is episode 86, the top five avant-garde horror movies, which may very well be my least favorite list of movies that I've watched in toto um, throughout the entirety of our podcast, right? Proud of that. <laughs> it just feels like a personal attack. It feels <laughs> like punishment. Um, I don't know what I did, um, but I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, I enjoy all these movies, so I don't know what to tell you. I guess to each their own. So do you want to just uh, give a little bit of maybe uh, insight into why you wanted to do avant-garde horror movies uh, as a list um, as our first episode of, um, you know, the spooky month of Halloween? And then uh also like just a little bit about like maybe if you can contextualize avant-garde horror for the audience uh i don't remember what inspired the list um i think a conversation that i had with a friend of the show orion wellmaker um about some movie that he had been watching and i recommended um that he seek out the number five movie on this list uh, and then i started thinking about it like i watched that movie that night as well and I don't know it's just it's one of those genres where well it's one of those things subgenre of horror where it can kind of en encompass like a bunch of different movie styles and I think that every movie on this list is pretty wildly different from the other um I think one of the things that turns most people people that don't like horror um people just think that it's the same thing over and over you know like it's the killer like stalking his prey and it's I don't know, Dutch angles and close-ups and like excessive gore. And I think that there's a lot of artistry that can be found in horror movies, um, even traditional ones. But I think these five movies all kind of push the envelope of even like defining what a traditional like horror movie is or like the examination of what is horrific in terms of, you know, the way that, the ideas and the themes are presented and kind of the maybe more like obscure nature of what the theme of the movie is you know they're not as simple to like define and analyze i think as like a traditional horror movie and i really like that um some of these movies are movies that i loved when i was young and kind of when i was like really getting into learning about film beyond like the stuff you could rent in the video store um a few of them well I guess there's nothing on this list that I've seen inside the past 10 years for the first time, eight years, I guess, for the one movie. Um, but a lot of them, you know, like I think are still feel fresh when you watch them. And even if you hate them, I think that they kind of lend themselves to good conversation and, you know, good analysis. So that's it. Yeah. And just as a warning, I will probably at some point get a little bitchy about some of the stuff in these movies, but I do want to say that I, despite all that, it's just, some of these just aren't my thing. I do appreciate the artistry that goes into them because it's more than I could ever do. Um, first of all. And then second, it's like, these are people that are just, that are artists that are trying to, um, push boundaries and and these are achievements uh regardless of how much i possibly get um angry a couple of times um but i'm gonna i'm gonna rein that in like because like i like i said i'm trying to trying to take a balanced approach to some of this like um 
Well, maybe your anger will be spooky and it'll be an appropriate, like, you know, <laughs> set off to the, to the, the month mountain. of horror that we have ahead of us. Right. Hmm. Um, was there anything else on this list that uh, there was one movie? About? There was one movie that about three weeks after we had kind of determined the final whatever um, composition of the list, and you would watch most of them that I thought I should put on there. Um, Russian horror movie called V uh, V I Y, currently available to stream on Shutter. Um, very fairy tale esque. Uh, good versus evil um, demons versus like whatever this goofy holy man it's it's really well done it's got some really cool visuals um, I thought about stuff like Eraserhead um, and Santa Sangre um, both of which are you know from podcasts uh, veteran, not veteran directors um, uh, Jodorowsky and um, David Lynch um, I just don't think I like Eraserhead enough. Like, I don't know that I really want to talk about it too much. And um, I think that we've talked about Yudorowsky recently enough that I don't want to talk about any of his movies for a little bit. Um, that was also his uh, kind of like a nod to you in some ways, although I didn't know you would hate some of these movies as much as you did. Um, I thought about putting Altered States um, okay. on there just because of its use of... Um, like negative filming and um, the weird, like kind of psychological and metaphysical nature of the movie. Um, but ultimately I think it's more of a straightforward movie than it is like any kind of like groundbreaking, like avant-garde. Um, and then the love witch from a couple of years ago, which even though the plot is kind of traditional, just the um, like the almost like precious dedication to filming in the style of like a technicolor, you know, movie from like the 60s, just the way the movie looks and the dialogue and the costume design and everything. Um, I thought it was really well done. Um, but again, like pretty straightforward plot. So nothing that really like pushed it over into that realm. Um, that would be, I don't even know what list that would make. Uh, maybe best witch movies someday, but um, still a good movie. But I'm pretty confident with the five on the list, you know, from my perspective. So looking forward to talking about all of them. Yeah, you mentioned V and the fairy tale, and I I liked V um, well enough. It's funny I watched V after you told me to watch it like four months ago, but um, the Love Witch is still sitting there unwashed after a year of you telling me to watch it. I don't know why. Um, <clears throat> I think you'll hate it personally, mm. but um, I I really liked it a lot. I think you have to have a really strong appreciation for like the pre pre hammer um post universal monster era of horror movies mm. um kind of like that existed in that realm when like sci-fi was the big thing to do um but still had like horror elements and there's a decent amount of those from the 60s um that almost feel like way too bright to be horror movies and that's kind of what the love witch is but i don't know i just really like the way it looks and right the aesthetic behind it um, but you talking about that made me, one of the things I think going into this list that might explain a lot of some of my reactions is I realize I don't like fairy tales watching these movies. That's interesting to me, considering that, you know, you're, uh, an English major and you're, you know, pretty well read. Um, 
I mean, I think the fairy tales more or less like form the basis for a lot of like the basic tropes of horror, um, especially like the grim fairy tales, you know, that lost in the black forest, you know, beset on all sides by like all manner of like unknowable creatures uh-huh. and stuff. The trickster, you know, demons and think animals about my, that are think really about my reaction to the company of wolves. Right. I mean, I don't know. And, and I'll explain my reaction to some of these movies, too. Um, right. It's true. Yeah. I, and I don't like things with myth. Like, you know how I feel about Arthurian stories and stuff like that a lot of the time. Um, yeah. Like, I, there, there's something there that I, I never recognized in myself. But, yeah, it certainly biases me towards some of these movies, I think. It's um, so weird because, to me, like, if I feel like a movie has done a good job of building like an internal mythos it almost makes me overlook um failings a little bit more like i can appreciate something that i feel is striving to generate its own like self-contained world um even if it you know doesn't like reach whatever lofty heights it hopes to like kind of kind of endears it to me so yeah i love myth though i mean we like I don't know if we've ever like necessarily talked about um this on the podcast, but like that's one of my big things is um folklore and myth and like world creation myth and like I have done a lot of like reading on that and I find it always fascinating, like from a different like cultural perspective and whatnot. So sure, it's exactly why you like T. S. Eliot and those kind of things a lot of times. Sure. Um and yeah like it's yeah it it is interesting because i I don't care and you think about like how i felt about a lot of those sword and sorcery movies too um exactly it's like there's there's something about uh certainly medieval times but i mean i think middle evil times is a lot of mythology like behind a lot of it you know like um it's where a lot of our western myth comes from for sure so so yeah i don't know um I always used to joke that it was like some sort of like, you know, bad period when I was like reincarnated from, but um, no, I, I don't know what it is though. It's like, I, I certainly just don't like it. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I see it as childish or, or what, like. Um, I mean, I understand, I guess. I, I'm, I know I don't understand really. I don't know. <laughs> right. right. Um, okay. So before we get started, I just wanted to let everybody know that um if you are looking for more horror-related podcasts um, and you are recent to the podcast here, we have a whole slew of horror podcasts. Um, you can certainly go back to the months of October um, in the past two years. Um, you can also uh, go back to last year uh, at the last episode of each month. Uh, we would finish the month off by doing the top five horror B movies of the years 80 through 89 um so there's a decade's worth of you know five movie lists um to go back to and if you just kind of scroll through our past you know there's random horror recommendation episodes um you know that frank has done for christmas or for you know halloween um last year i believe and so there's a whole slew of other podcasts out there um for those of you that are traditional listeners um you know, uh, I think Frank apologized a few weeks ago, <laughs> um, but um, this is what we're going to do every October is definitely dive into horror stuff. So um, 
as always, you can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us our Facebook page. Um, and if you ever want to contact us, you can contact us through those, uh, you know, social media sites, or you can contact us at two guys, five movies at gmail.com. All right. So number five on your list, Frank, is 1989's The Begotten. It is directed by E. Elias Marriage. It stars Brian Salzberg, Donna Dempsey, and Stephen Charles Barry. It has a 67% from critics and a 65% from audiences. You want to try to explain a little bit about this movie to us and maybe give some of the kind of history of this movie and why you like it? I mean, I don't think it's moderately easy to explain from a narrative standpoint because there's no narrative. Um, Trying to explain how that's uh, executed might be a little bit more difficult at times. So it's filmed in a very grainy it's it's in black and white, but it's filmed from like almost uh like it looks like you're watching some like lost like recovered documentary film footage. Um, the general premise is that there's this creature living in a cabin in the woods that's mutilating itself, and through its mutilation, it gives birth to these two other beings, um, like a earth mother or earth daughter or something i don't know and like a son um i don't know it's really just a series of like vignettes that probably go on a little too long um that are repetitions and like representations of like world creation myths so kind of harkens back in some ways to like like Roman mythology in some ways, but then like the, um, whatever, like the origins of that myth. So like the, then like the Greek myths, but the idea of like, you know, life coming from death and like the blood of the God, like causing things to spring up from the earth. Um, but in wrapped in a almost like pseudo Texas chainsaw massacre, I don't know like abstract lens kind of you know like these creatures where it's like really tight close-ups on eyes or like bloody wounds or and the fact that it's done in this grainy almost pixelated black and white style makes it feel makes the images a little more obscure so like your imagination does a lot more work so it feels a lot more um grotesque i think than what it actually is um it's a hundred percent a movie that you either are going to find interesting or it's going to annoy the shit out of you. I think like, I don't think there's any middle ground to it. Um, so I found this movie in the early nineties ish. Um, and it was almost like a urban legend for us as kids in some ways, because it's not like, I think there was one video store you could rent it, but it was always rented. And so everyone like saw it through these bootleg copies. So you take this movie that even at its most pristine version is this like pixelated grainy kind of mess. And you then through like, you know, even recording on like SP or whatever, like you're getting degeneration like every single time you make a copy of it. So you're seeing these things where the tracking's terrible and the images are hard to see, but you have like these things coming out of it like this 
moaning fucking rocking monster that's like swathed in bloody bandages like carving itself up with a friggin um straight razor or like this like half naked i don't know like creature crawling out from under its shawl and like i don't know mutilating it. there's just all kinds of imagery in it that's really kind of horrific um and he made even more so by the fact that you know this was pre-internet days so nobody knew who made this movie nobody really knew like where it came from there wasn't a lot of like it wasn't like it was a theatrical release so there was no press on it or anything it's just this thing that like you would find and people that like horror movies or were interested in you know like whatever like the more i don't know like obscure avant-garde you know art film type stuff like it just seemed like kind of like how the Blair Witch felt but with the opposite effect of like not having any kind of like push just this thing you found like this relic and like it almost felt forbidden to watch it if that makes any mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. um so a lot of my love for this movie comes from like just those memories and like remembering and talking to people and like hey like you know I have a copy of Begotten. We should watch a copy of Begotten. Like, and then it was unavailable forever. Like, it wasn't released anywhere for like, probably a decade. So it was almost impossible to find. So whenever you would meet somebody that talked about it, like, you know, you would have this long conversation about how fucked up it was and how crazy it was and, you know, how disturbing it was to watch. And ultimately what it turns out is the um, Mirage, or however you say the guy's name, Marriage, um, yeah. was like a theater major and had conceived yes. this, like, almost like post-punk, I don't know, theater, like Grand Guignol-esque creation myth play that he felt was too like complex and expensive to put on, like on stage, so he just decided to film it. So it's really like super like art house, whatever. But again, like as a relic, you know, is like finding this thing um, and it's available on YouTube now, so it's obviously not like any, they just have to search Begotten Film, and it's, you know, there's, it's free, like four or five different videos, all pristine, so, you know, you don't get any of the degeneration to it. Um, but in the early 90s, it really was like, this and this and the third movie on the list are the two movies that were kind of like my entry point into, like, these more obscure art house, you know, maybe not even classifiable as horror in the traditional sense. Because I don't think Begotten is necessarily a horror movie. It's just weird or whatever. But it's got some horrific stuff, and I think the imagery kind of stays with you. Well, I mean, so speaking of that cult status, like, I had heard of this movie long before I had watched it because if you were on message boards in the 2000s, there's images that would be um, taken from this movie and posted in like creepypasta threads, like all the time. And specifically the the character in the beginning, God killing himself, like um, the, the long shot in the chair of, you know, the person in the mask with the smock, you know, like robes on and like bloodied and like, you know, sitting there in that chair, like is like one of the images that pops up on, um always used to pop up on something awful or 4chan forums and stuff like that when it came to creepypasta like threads um and still does i think probably um not that i'm on there anymore but i'm sure it's still used um so it's called status like you know uh 
you know, like people would take pieces of it and it still had this cult status. And people thought it was like images from the 1800s almost, you know, as opposed to a movie that was filmed in, you know, 89. And um, so I, I, I do think that it's that that aspect of it that you're talking about, that like, you know, kind of like bootlegging cult status that it has and how that's even like still going on in different ways, like to this day with this movie's fascinating. Um, I mean, ultimately, for a movie that's just kind of like a, I don't know, like almost like pro-environmental, maybe even like anti-religious in some ways, or like anti-organized religion. Like, yeah, it just it it gains a life of its own just from being so, you know, like a, obscure in its its motives or its its message. So, well, it's it's a fascinating movie in that respect too, I suppose. Um, just in terms of like what's going on philosophically with the movie, and I don't know if we want to get too much into that, but I do find it very interesting uh, that. Like, it, it seems that, yeah, I mean, in one way, it seems, like, very earthy because of, like, the Mother Earth character. But at right. the same time, it's also really condemning people who have turned into pagans um, in this movie. Like, the, the the population kind of is just turning into these pagans, um, you know, and that's kind of condemned. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition there um, in sure. that regard. Um, I know, I know, because like the the filmmaker, the the so him being a theater major, like what he's doing actually is um all from when we talked about this a while back, like maybe a month or two ago. Um, uh, a lot of it's inspired by Antonin Artaud's theater of cruelty, um, and like the whole premise behind theater of cruelty was just um to terrorize the senses um in a way and uh i can certainly see where that idea this idea could be taken and done in a theater but yeah i'm sure he's right it would be very expensive um it would be much cheaper to do on film and uh and and i think in that respect he's successful um i think with the you know the music and the imagery and i think your senses are kind of like bombarded to some degree and i can see where that's off-putting to some people um but it also be theater of cruelty type stuff is also very pretentious. I mean, I've, I've seen elements, I've never seen an actual theater of cruelty play. I've seen elements used in a couple of different productions, but, um, uh, you know, and I do think it can be used to affect, but um, having the whole thing kind of come in that style, I think overwhelms people. Um, so I think that's one way people could be turned off by this movie. I think the other way people could be turned off is more like how I view it, which is that um, I think there's really fascinating images in this ultimately i thought that like it was just kind of dull and pretentious and um and while i can appreciate the effort in those kind of things like at the same time it feels like um some late teens early 20s like you know people like probably from a theater like getting together on a weekend like a long weekend and you know they stop off at i don't know like a 7-eleven um and stock up on Hostess cakes and squeezits, um, and travel out to the damn woods and with a handheld and do some weird shit like to the production of it, um, and film this like you know idea that they have. And I, that sound I know that's minim, minimizing them to yeah. some degree, but that's what it feels like is the idea that it's like this kind of student film to me. You know, um, so 
again, like, I think that's through the lens of, like, knowing what it is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. when you don't know what it is, you know, when there's an air of mystery to it, like, it's sure, much more I'm sure it's much more effective. Mm-hmm. Right, like, it's always, like, anytime you, like, pull back the curtain to see the wizard or whatever, like, it kind of loses its, um, its inherent charm or whatever. I'm sure but, that the way that you saw it was the best way to probably have seen it. Um, having had pieces of it exposed to me over the years and knowing that it came yeah. from a movie and then watching that movie and like kind of like doing a podcast where I have to do some research on stuff like you know I mean um, it's not the optimal way probably to watch this movie. Right. I mean I was almost like reticent to put it on a list just because I feel like it minimizes its impact to talk about it like this like I think that forever I think it should be something that somebody just like randomly finds by accident and wonders like what the fuck did I just see as opposed to you know like some kind of deep analysis of not that we're giving a deep analysis you know like talking about it I think just kind of like pulls away it's it's like Blair Witch like Blair Witch was so impactful until you got inundated with like all the Blair Witch shit and you started seeing, you know, Heather, whatever her name is, like on interviews and stuff. And then it's like, okay, well, this isn't scary anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, in terms of anal- one of the things I was going to say with the Artoad stuff is like Artoad himself was inspired by Nietzsche. Like, so I, I'm assuming watching this, this idea of God killing himself is some sort of reference to, to, to him. And, um, I kind of took it as because that whole thing about like God is dead is so often misinterpreted or mis you know understood. Um, you know, it's not him declaring God dead. It's like you know the people have declared God as dead. Um, the, their belief in him um, uh, is what he's talking about in that. And I kind of took it the same way in this is that like God kind of sees like what he's what his things have become and kills himself. That's why he's God killing himself. Um, but that, you know, and then mother earth is born and then, you know, how I feel about this shit too. Like her jerking off his dead body, um, you know, and order to get his semen so she can birth what, what's the name of the son of earth or something is the the boy, you know, how I feel about that kind of shit too. Um, like, I think it's shock value, um, to to some degree and, and you know how I kind of feel about that stuff. Sure, but I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's like an anti-religious screed in those ways. Yeah. Well, this so, is the guy, and I, I did not know this. This is the guy, Marriage is the guy that does um, the Antichrist Superstar video. Yeah, he's, Manson was in love with this guy. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he also does Shadow of the Vampire, which I've seen, and while I didn't think it was um, amazing or anything like that, I mean, it wasn't a, a decent enough movie. I mean, like, yeah. so, I mean, this guy has... You know, I, I, this is a very early attempt of his, you know, like, I mean, right. at, at film and, um, you know, I mean, like I said, it's, it's got a cult status and I can appreciate like the artistry that goes behind it or, you know, attempts at it and stuff like that. Just, it's just kind of something that I just was like rolling my eyes at, like, at, I'd be interested for two minutes and then I'd be rolling my eyes for 10. Like it's, it just felt like it was over long and had pieces that were really strong. Yeah, I don't know. But like I think, I said, like I said, I think it's the thing that you either are going to really be into or you're going to absolutely hate. And right. there's enough people in like our circle of friends that have seen it that have like both of those, you know, 
go through those right. feelings towards it. But yeah. I think that still makes it effective. You know, like if you can draw that much to like even like annoyance out of somebody, like it still is serving some purpose. So anyway, I think it makes definitely though the most avant-garde movie on the list. Right. Just from a like yeah. pure definition standpoint, I think. Yeah. The other one's kind of a couple uh, the one of them comes close though. Um <clears throat> number three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um still a lot more of like an actual narrative to that movie. I agree. I agreed. <laughs> agreed. Um all right. So number four on your list is hey, let me say this though really oh. quick before you move on. I am super surprised how many critical reviews encompass that sixty-six percent. Um, let me double check that nine. Okay, well that makes sense. Never um, and in terms of top critics, uh, only two of them re- ever reviewed it, and it is split. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan Rosenbaum did not like it. Um, and Janet Maslin from the New York Times oddly did. Um, that's interesting oh no reverse that sorry oh, rosenbaum yeah. liked it and um rosenbaum likes stuff like this because number four on the list rosenbaum also loves um so it was maslin didn't like it. that makes a lot more sense uh, but yeah it was nine nine reviews a lot of them are like way after the fact you know um people right it now. Yeah. all right so number four on your list is 1988's Alice. It is directed by Jan Schankmeyer and stars Christina Kobitova and Kobitova. Um, and it has a 100% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 80% from audiences. Um, and Rosenbaum, it's 20 critics out of that 100%, by the way. And um, Rosenbaum is one of those critics that um, yeah. liked it. Um, so you want to tell us a little bit about this and uh, why you have it on the list? Uh, so Schwankmeyer was a, um, short film director. Uh, this is actually his, maybe his feature length film debut. It's really early on anyway. And he had been directing films for like a long time at this point. Um, it really is just an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. Um, like a pretty faithful and almost direct adaptation, but done with a mixture of, um, live action, um traditional photography mixed with uh, stop motion animation um and the majority of the film is done in a stop motion animation style um it's also done from the perspective that everything that's happening is in the context of a bored child like playing and creating these things and scenarios as every character in the film is voiced by the girl that plays alice um, without any attempt at like disguising her voice, like it's just her voice coming out of these things mouths. Um, Svankmeyer was pretty hugely influential um, in the early 90s on a lot of like, um, specifically the Brothers Quay, who did the uh, uh, Tool videos, if you're familiar. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, like I think he influenced Burton somewhat. Um, and you can see like in his style, it's a blend of kind of whimsy with um, almost like dark, I don't know how you would describe it. Like Google eyes, googly eyes or whatever um, attached to the um, sawdust stuffed, you know, 
body of like a um, taxidermy rabbit or alligator or something like these aren't like stuffed animals these are the corpses and bones of like creatures that this young girl is like fantasizing that she's playing with and creating the tale of Alice in Wonderland um, which this this is the movie that strays the furthest from being like definable as horror necessarily um, I think the only reason that I really consider it horror is just because of the it's got a very claustrophobic and dreamlike feel to it. Like it feels in some, in some instances, like it's a nightmare in a lot of ways. Um, especially the, um, the white rabbit has a crew of other like animals that he's, that are his like servants or whatever. And it's a, an alligator with like a rabbit's or a um, lizard skull attached to it. And then there's a, um, I don't know, it's like a dog skull attached to like this tiny little like withered body and um, the rabbit himself when he pulls out his um, his pocket watch um, is pulling his own sawdust out with it and like lapping it up like off the face of the watch mm -hmm. um, kind of to keep himself full. Um, Alice when she's in, imbibing the potions um, to shrink herself turns into a small uh, china doll. Um, and then later gets submerged in milk and trapped in a larger like body stuffed body china doll body or whatever that she emerges from um but ultimately it's just alice in wonderland you know like up yeah through. when i watched it i because i hadn't seen it before when i watched it i had no doubt like i didn't question the idea that it was a horror movie so i i, I when i was watching it, i was like yeah right this is you know, that's what it's supposed to be. it's supposed to be disturbing so i think it classifies as horror yeah and he um he's he kind of went on after this to do other like he's very much into the idea of like the child's fable or the child's tale like and not even because Faust is his thing after this and Faust is really good too and you would hate that um but but beautiful like puppets and stop motion animation and I'm a huge fan of stop motion animation like I love just the sheer like artistry and technical like exactness that goes into making it look good and i think this movie is an amazing blend of real like live action cinematography mixed with stop motion animation to the point where it never feels um it never feels like cobbled together like it always feels like there's a scene where she's chasing the rabbit across um this desolate like rutted field of like mud basically um when he's going to go down like into the hole or whatever and it just it's seamless like the transition between like the rabbit running and her running and you can tell it's stop motion animation but when you consider it's all practical effects with like no like green screening or anything of the two like it's it's pretty impressive so i don't know it just it, it 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 feels like nightmares I've had like watching this movie and this is another movie I saw again pretty shortly after it came out on VHS and it was something where like I didn't know who you know Jan Schwankmeyer was or anything and you know I remember just being really impressed and really kind of like unnerved by it and one of the things that you know then watching like Brothers Quay and then other people too like Gilliam and um, Burton who are obviously influenced like later in their careers by Schwankmeyer. Like it's just, I don't know, he's really impressive. That's it. That's why do you hate it? Because I know you don't like this. We've talked about how you don't like this movie up there. 
So I think you were t- you, you accused me um, before the podcast of not liking stop motion animation, and um, I think there's some truth to that. Absolutely. Um, so I say that because I, we've never talked about a movie with stop motion animation, and you've enjoyed that movie, right? And a lot of times you're like, "Oh, I hate that movie." <laughs> like Clash of the Titans. Like you hate Clash of the right. Titans, right? No, and I right. love Clash of the Titans. How do you feel about the other Harry Houses stuff, like um, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and um, uh, what's the uh, one with the Cyclops? Like, uh, that's either Golden Voyage of Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts. I can't remember which one. I think it's Jason I, I and the Argonauts. Um, I, that maybe, like, yeah, I, I seem to remember that. Um, I think there's probably some kind of repressed childhood trauma there. Hmm. Um. In that I remember enjoying those at one point in my life when I was very young. My dad used to watch them all the time. But um, it's like I wouldn't, while there are some things in my childhood I'd go back and watch again, um, I would never choose to go back and watch those again. So somehow I associate them with my father. And yeah. um, even though I enjoyed them, I remember when I was young. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. I just, but, like, um, I, I, I love that stuff. Like, I really... I don't know, like, I find it to be, um, like, super impactful, just, like I said, the artistry of it, so, and yeah. I, I really like it in Alice, I think so that I th- is... I, look, I don't, I, don't, I don't fucking like Alice in Wonderland, just as a general, okay. like, I don't like it, like, um, and I think that goes back to the fairy tale stuff, too, so it's like, I think this thing has a number of things, like, working against it um, for me from the beginning, um, and then it's like, when I'm sitting there watching it, it just feels like it's trying too hard. Like it's it's like when I said disturbing earlier, it's like it's like I, I you could t- probably hear my voice. I was putting in quotes. Like it feels like it's tr- it doesn't feel disturbing. It feels like it's trying to be disturbing the entire time to me with some of some of the stuff they do. And I don't know when I can sense when I can sense the wizard behind the curtain, like. This is different from, and I think that's ultimately the difference between Begotten and this. It's like, again, I can appreciate the artistry in this um, and, and what goes into making it and stuff like that. But as I'm sitting there watching it as a movie, it feels like a really shitty adaptation, like in terms of the plot and narrative, even if the, um, even, even if the visuals and stuff are impressive and artistic, um, but it feels like they're trying to be disturbing for disturbing sake without any real, um, meaning behind trying to do that to me and i don't know i just i just the, the, the longer i watch it the more irritated i got um i mean this just is that's just his artistic vision like i don't know this isn't like some 17 year old whatever like your claim what you said about begotten like this is a Established yeah, I mean, and filmmaker. Look, he was he was twenty five. Like marriage was when he did that. Like you know, I mean, like he was an adult who had theater experience behind him, and was that was an artistic vision. And I'm sure this is too. Um, it's just I don't like this artistic vision. Again, it's also Alice in Wonderland is just basically a modern fairy tale. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, right. That's another pre, thing. Yeah. Pre modern. So yeah, and that's kind of like yeah. counting that in, right? I don't like Alice in Wonderland in particular. I don't, I'm not a fan of fairy tales. It has stop motion animation. And I 
don't like things that like you know are like trying to be disturbing like and just like not letting it be natural to me and i mean yeah i don't know i think think you're I think you're the wrong audience for this movie. Yeah, so. no, I agree. I nope, I completely, one hundred percent agree. Um, just not my, not my thing. Um, but I will say that um, number three on your list, Tetsuo the Iron Man from nineteen eighty nine, is directed by Shinya Tsukamoto and Tomorowa Taguchi. Um, barely got that first name out. Um has a 79% from critics and a 76% from audiences. Um, I do find more value in this though, for some reason than I do the other ones, even though I think it's just as, um, it's not too far off from begotten. I mean, like in terms of like some of it, like you said, more narrative, but. Sure, I mean, it's a postmodern fable in some ways, I guess. Or like a fable for the modern age or something. I don't know. Right. Either one of those things I think works. Yeah. So go ahead and tell them a little bit about this movie. Like, um, so this is another movie that I kind of just found by accident in the early 90s. Um, it's set in modern Japan. Um, follow, initially follows a guy who's obsessed with metal um, and credited in the movie as the metal fetishist. Um, who inserts a metal rod into his leg um, and becomes infected and it's crawling with maggots and causes him to freak out and run out on the street where he gets hit by a car uh, that's driven by um, a, the salary man and along with his girlfriend. Um, they run him over. Um, you later find out that they had sex over his body while they thought he was dying. Um Tetsuo, the salary man, increasingly um, starts having pieces of metal like spurt from parts of his body, um, including a giant drill phallus. Um, basically, he turns into this like conglomerate, conglomerate amalgamation of mostly metal, some flesh, and him and the fetishist who wasn't dead, who came back to life, is this creature that can like rust out any metal they um merge together and form this giant monstrous being that looks to turn the whole world you know into like a giant ball of rusty metal um it's really like so being made in the end of the 80s which is kind of post japanese like electronics revolution um like the initial you know like the nintendo and sega becoming super popular and things like arcades and whatever, like becoming really omnipresent in Japan. And um, I think it's kind of a reaction to that in some ways. Um, Like the idea that people were moving away more from like traditional, like worldly values to being kind of immersed in this culture of wires and diodes. And um, interestingly, a lot of the stuff that um, uh, Tsukamoto um, used to make the costume for this movie came from old television sets. Um, some stop motion animation in this too. So surprising that you didn't like freak out about that. Um, <laughs> but really, like, just uh, it, it's really more of like almost like a ghost, 
like it has a lot more to do with something traditional like quite on i think from a japanese perspective than it does something like begotten even though it is kind of like a like the it's almost like an anime version of like the mythology of like the creation of this god being which is a culmination of these two rivals that become sort of lovers but are like merged together into one um monstrous thing um the only reason i watched this movie is because when i was a kid like a young teenager i was pretty obsessed with um kachuhiro otomo's akira Mm -hmm. the anime um and one of the main characters in that is called tetsuo so i was really like pretty ignorant of japanese culture and stuff so i just i thought maybe there was something related to it so i watched it this movie really upset me the first time i saw it like it was very very difficult for me to watch um i have a lot of trouble watching foreign objects inserted into people's bodies like that um and there's a lot of very graphic and again like with begotten because it's in black and white and it's shot even though some of the cinematography in this movie is incredibly clear and beautiful like most of it is grainy and dirty and it it feels like industrial and grimy and just gross um it was really difficult for me to watch but i you know i'd watched it again like a few years later and i've really come to appreciate it over the years um i think it's a really good like postmodern fable i think that it's incredibly effective um especially upon first viewing um and i think it's probably the best example of like that body horror like modern body horror that became really prevalent in Japan after this. Um, and there's a few movies. There's a movie called Rubber's Lover and a movie called Pinocchio 948. I think I can never remember what the numbers are there, but um, they're both like very similar in tone, but ne- nothing's as good as Tetsuo from that uh, that perspective. I've never seen any of the sequels, so I can't talk about that. Gotcha. Yeah, I thought there was much more worth in this movie than I did the others. And I think it's because, I don't know, I just felt like this was actually trying to make a point. (laughs) Like, I actually felt like there was, like, some sort of something that you could latch on to of, like, what it was trying to say, where I didn't feel that way necessarily with the others. Um, And it's like, I, it's like, I was disturbed by the movie. Um, I was not comfortable watching it. But I'm also uncomfortable with that kind of manic, frenetic pace that, because it does feel like Akira to me, um, like yeah. which is something I'm not a big fan of. Um, but I, but I, so it bothered me in that regard. But it also bothered me with the body horror stuff. I also do not like things like knives and stuff like that. Like I don't like the idea of things entering skin. And um, so. It, but at the same time, even though it bothered me, like it did feel at times horrific to me as opposed to trying to be horrific. Like, and there was like a different horror that was going on underneath the surface of the horror that you were, the body horror. And I think that's when the best body horror comes about is when it's not just, it's not just there for the sake of body horror. Um, It's not just there to be gross or gory or disgusting it's like there's a there's a reason that that's happening in the movie so maybe bad example like the fly like especially like the remake that i'm more familiar with of the goldblum remake like you know there's statements there about science you know about like you know like 
perseverance and those kind of things and like moral questions and philosophical questions that are that underlie the body horror nature of that um same thing with what was it uh oh shit 1989 i think list um be horror movie society oh society right yep. like I, I thought that again there's a meaning there with that body horror and stuff like that like um it's it's there's a statement to be made and i felt the same way about this so it's like i was able to forgive some of the things i didn't like as much because i thought it was not only an interesting film even though it bothered me but also because it was interesting there's interesting ideas there and maybe i'm again biased because it's more modern than it is like older you know um in the sense of like it's dealing with more modern issues as opposed to issues that maybe are more uh, timeless or something like that i'm not sure but um i found this much more interesting uh, like um and honestly it might be it might be more and more maybe it might be the most interesting movie on the list to some degree in terms of thinking about it like you know and like thinking about like what's going on in that movie for me um hmm. it's it, it competes with number one um to me like you know um in that regard so i i don't know i thought it was a really interesting movie and i think it's worth watching um i think all these movies are worth watching honestly but um for whatever you know despite what i think about them they're all worth watching Alice is the only one I wish I never would have watched. It's a good movie, though. <laughs> but yeah, Tetsuo, um, and now was this another one that was like a bootleg thing, or was this something you discovered? How, when did you discover Yeah, I rented this. Um, this was at the movie store. Fox Lorber released this, so it was like a legitimate oh, okay. um, VHS release. It wasn't some bullshit, like, second-generation bootleg copy. Yeah. Um, I just thought the cover of the the VHS was pretty captivating. Um, and again, like the connection with the name between the Akira anime in this. Um, but it was another one that like no one had seen it. Like you could count on like one hand over the years, the number of people that I've met that have seen Tetsuo. Um, so, you know, it's that whole like cult movie type feeling right. of, of watching it. Um, I don't know, just, yeah. And really disturbing, like, when you would talk to someone that had seen it, like, that was always, again, just, like, with Begotten, you know. Like, man, that's fucked up, and, like, you know, talking about the awful scenes in the movie and how, like, difficult it was to watch, and it was kind of, like, that shared trauma kind of experience that made it feel a little more special, maybe, or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I find a lot, like, I almost find this as interesting as I do, like, video drone. Like, I agree with that. I mean, it's this, pretty. It's pretty similar. Yeah, like in this way that, like, basically, like this is this is where we're all heading, you know. Um, in some ways, like, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think it's worth watching. And like, as much as like I, it made me uncomfortable. It's something I might watch again at some point. I'm not sure. Yeah, free on a uh, is it Shutter? Shutter. It's on Shutter. Yep. Yep. Forgotten um, is on YouTube as is Alice. Yeah, both of those are on in YouTube. their entirety. Right. Um, as is the next, as is right. That's a good segue. Yes. Yeah, see. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so as is the number two movie on your list, Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, which I've been calling Valerie and Her Week of Secrets for like five weeks now or something like that, because I can never remember. But Valerie and Her Week of Wonders is from 1970. Um, 
it is directed by uh, Yamaril Yirish, and it stars Jaroslava Sherilova and Peter Kopriva. And it has 93% from critics and a 79% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you like it so much? Uh, this is based on a early 1900s novel um, of the same name, Valerie Week of Wonders. Um, it's a very uh, ethereal movie that follows, um, I don't know if exploits is the right word, but um, circumstances and happenstances that follow this. What has she said to me in the movie? 13 going on 14 maybe or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This young young woman in a un, unnamed um, almost romantic era like town um, coming into her like womanhood basically through her first period um, who's beset by a bunch of very fairy tale-esque um, people and creatures um, vampires mostly shapeshifters um, it's got a very in my opinion, distinctly um, like Hans Christian Andersen feel to it with the idea of like the princess, you know, who's maybe the daughter of like this villain and who's, you know, helped by someone who may or may not have the best intentions and is kind of the object of lust of like all this large group of like creatures and people with like ill intention and whatever. So um some really amazing visuals i think that sin like in terms of the cinematography i think this is by far the most beautiful movie on the list yeah. um very uh very dreamlike in the way it's filmed um it's got a it's got a just a, a distinct and i in my opinion like not maybe easily followed but certainly like discernible narrative to it but it's almost told as a series of vignettes of like different like interconnected things that have happened to this young woman over the course of a week basically hence the week of wonders um some eroticism to it which is pretty common in like european cinema from the early 70s um yeah just i don't know some really I, I really like the idea that to, to me this is the most very distinctly fairy tale esque movie on the list. Like it definitely feels like three or four interconnected. Like I said, like Hans Christian Andersen stories is what it really reminds me of. Um, coupled with like some good, like old fashioned, you know, Eastern European folklore, like vampire mythology and lycanthrope mythology and the idea of um, almost like the princess and the pea kind of thing where there's these small little like ornaments or tchotchkes that can save you and keep you from harm um, as long as you remember that you have them that you use them and you know that maybe the person that looks like the villain isn't necessarily the villain even if like they do bad things they might be cursed or under a spell or I don't know that's just there's like a wicked stepmother-esque character in it. And it just, for me, it like, it ticks all the boxes, the things that I love, you know, uh, you know, like fairy tale, like mythology influence works, films. Yeah. 
15 minutes into this movie, Ryan <laughs> texted me and said, this is the most frank movie ever. And it's like, I laugh because it's true. Like, I mean, like, this is all the kind of things you like. I mean, even the yeah. filmmaking style in it, which I think is great. Um, it kind of does remind me of some of those, like, it's better cinematography and it's more colorful, but it still reminds me a lot of the Hammer movies that you like so much and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it very much, um, I wouldn't say influenced because the time period, like, they're pretty much concurrent. Mm -hmm. But, um very much so in the sense of like you know they found this like he the director found this village that was basically frozen in time and that's where like 90 percent of the movie is filmed is um you know in this like eastern czechoslovakian village right um i don't know it's, it's also got some really in my opinion like kind of bold themes for the early 70s in terms of like um like pseudo lesbianism and the idea that like this woman's right it makes it, it allows it to be a viable option right and Which it's not like very interesting condemning. In, yeah in 1970 yeah. it's neither condemning nor is it like over sexualizing an act right. just to titillate like it's genuinely sure. like the innocence and love of this girl is able right. to whatever Sure. Like cure all these people, even sometimes of death. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, really, I, I really love this movie. This was something that I found accidentally again. Like, I can't even remember how I found it, but um, I had, I think Kino maybe released it on DVD and I just bought it like randomly and was really impressed. Um, watched it this, like twice in the span of like a day or two. Um, just because I was so blown away. I think it's got one of, visually, one of the best villains of the 1970s in the polecat, um, or the constable, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. um, just this rat-like pinched face with these, like, snarled, like, draggled, like, yellow teeth and squinty eyes and the, like, tufts of hair, like, poking off of the tops of his ears that, like, show you that he's not quite human. Um, I love the vampire imagery in it, like his, uh, her grandmother slash mother slash aunt or cousin or whatever, um, I think is really effective as like this undead, um, lustful, like greedy creature. Um, I love, uh, Eaglet, um, her paramour slash supposed brother. Um, he really reminds me of like the Jack character from, um, fairy tales this mm. mischievous like troublemaker that is still on the side of right and is there to like save the princess in moments of peril and like has the information that she needs to get out of like you know mortal danger or whatever yeah it's just a beautiful movie like I, I i really love it like watching it again this time i was super impressed with it again and realized like why i like it. Yeah, I, I I mentioned to you last night. This is what this is when I realized when I was thinking about this movie today and thinking about the brief conversation we had last night that I realized I don't like fairy tales. Um, was because of this, and it's like because I was like trying to almost like find more meaning in this than I think what was there. Um, and you're like, I think it's pretty straightforward. I think the subtext and the plot like match up pretty well. And the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, like I guess you're right. Um, and like you said, it's vignettes. It really is just like 
here's this innocent girl we're going to put it in all in a supernatural context but let's throw all this wickedness at her and see if she maintains her innocence and that's really what all that's going on here right um and i was looking for something deeper um i think when really it was just is it is what it is um and maybe that's what maybe that's how i feel about fairy tales a lot of times is i'm looking for something deeper sometimes when yeah it is what it is often like the subtext and the it, it's it's the plot is the subtext a lot of times you know like or the subtext. i mean is to me plot. to me the best fairy tales like you look at even things like um what's her name uh so someone that was influenced by this is um i'm gonna get her name wrong and and cooper is that what her name is or the cooper. bloody the bloody tower no i got her name her last name wrong Oh, this is gonna drive me nuts. The woman that wrote um Angela Carter. Um, who also inspired Company of Wolves. Um Okay. To me, it's like she gets it right. And it's exactly it's like a good fairy tale is about something. And it can have some complexity, but ultimately it's about a thing like an idea a moral dilemma um like a universal question or whatever mm -hmm. and i think in this case the idea is you know innocence versus sin basically and i've read some criticism where he's criticism in the sense of just like critical analysis sure yeah. um where it's a very anti-catholic movie and i can see that in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, like I, I, I get, especially when you're looking at like Eastern Europe in the late 60s, early 70s, um, which was still basically like medieval Europe in a lot of ways. Sure. Like I get that anti-Catholic um, Well, the priest mindset. in the town, certainly. I mean, that whole character, that hypocrite character, like, you know, I mean, is certainly. Well, not only that, but the fact that the her polecat, grandmother or whatever, too. But... Yeah, the polecat was the bishop at one point. Or at least is implied to have maybe have been the bishop right, that impregnated right. her mother and right. left her mother like you know alone and bereft. Right. And even though that doesn't turn out to be true, the fact that most people think it's true, I think, paints a an interesting look at like how the church was viewed, you know. But sure. ultimately, like you said, it's about it is the princess and the pea, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's the chaste maiden who's able to <clears throat> stay chaste and basically defeat sin through the virtue of her innocence in a lot of ways. Sure. Right. And the vignettes end up acting as I do think criticisms of different things, you know, in the world, like whether it be the church, whether it be town gossip, whether it be moral, like, you know, individual choice, like, you know, like to stay on a true path or, you know, commit sin, like, you know, for family members, right. Whatever the, you know, those vignettes as you call them are like, you know, um, and so I think that like, you know, there's the fairy tale aspect. I was looking for something more that necessarily wasn't there. And it's like, but then if I'm kind of left with the idea of that, that these vignettes are just kind of exposing Valerie to different sins of the world. Um, and it's like, so is the movie telling me like that these sins exist? Like, you know, is, is, is part of the movie. Um, here are the things that young people have to deal with. Um, 
if you're just telling me like how fucked up the world is through the sexual perversions and manipulations of like people and how they're all hypocrites, um, you know, okay. Right. I, I mean, mean, that's a lot of what like. That's why I dislike grim, white people movies so much, you know? <laughs> that, that, that's a lot of what like the real like true medieval fairy tales are about, you know? I mean, what else is Snow right. White or Cinderella sure. or. Sure. Sure. Sleeping Beauty, you know, I mean, that's what this movie is, is basically that, but without the veneer of, you know, right. decades of, like, Disneyfication of these fairy tales to make them palatable to children. Sure. Like, this is, like, the root of that fairy tale in a lot of ways, and I think the Valerie, you know, like, the movie captures it, like, really well, like, almost, like, crystallizes it in a lot of ways, and like it's, to me, that makes it super powerful, you know, and the fact that he's... Like a lot of these Eastern European movies, and this is another reason why that V movie I think is really impressive, is they have almost like an outlaw filmmaking feel to them in the sense that it feels like people and like um uh like Stalker, like you know, Tarkovsky or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um someone that didn't grow up in the traditional Hollywood, you know machine of like this is how you make a movie right so you get this feeling of just like experimentation and um you know just genuine like enthusiasm and artistry that comes out in it. like i love that stuff so much like it, it, it feels good to watch those movies like it feels like you're like discovering filmmaking along with the person that's making it. like there's a joy to it that i think sometimes gets lost in movies that are made by people that have come through you know like our lives which are decades and decades of basically like refining the process to like a fine point you know it, it doesn't it doesn't have that same feeling of like exploration and innovation and interest to it which is like when i see movies like that that's why it's so mind-blowing like why i love you know, finding new movies and watching new movies all the time because, like, when you get that, like, it's one of the best feelings ever. So, yeah. and I feel that when I watch Valerie. Yeah. So, number your number one movie on the list. <laughs> it, and mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our joint number one movie on this list is Berberian Sound Studio from 2013. is directed by Peter Strickland. It stars Toby Jones, Cosimo Fusco, and Tonia Sotirapula. It uh, has an 85% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 53% from audiences. Um, yeah, that's... That makes sense. So let me talk about that before we get into like what this movie is. Mm -hmm. I think the reason why that audience scores 53%, this movie was marketed as a horror movie. Right. Like, and pick exactly the right scenes from this movie to make it seem like a horror movie, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. And this is a horror movie. It is. But it's a horror movie in a very cerebral sense. High-minded, philosophical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the sense that you're it's as much about you being complicit in the horror. Yes. 
as it is about showing you these scenes of horror because it's really about like you paying attention and listening and mostly listening but like watching and like seeing clues and figuring out and while i don't think that it's like incredibly like it's not like some lynchian level of complexity it's definitely like a lot more complex than most horror movies that you watch and the horror itself comes from like I said, like like your interpretation and your yes. appreciation of it more so than just like a series of terrible images or scary, you know, ghostly things or whatever happening. And in the sense that there's really That's not much like actual physical representation of horror in a traditional sense on the screen. In the so... Screen. That's crazy, Frank. Like we we sometimes we think too much alike, probably like in the way that we like read some of these things. Because like seriously, what I have in my notes here for myself is like all sounds. This relies on imagination, Gilderoy's imagination, and the viewers. Sound sound here is left to interpretation. Even language doesn't help, as there are different languages between um, cultures, and there's different languages even between genders um this all leads to creating like a loneliness and an isolation ultimately a paranoia that is the core of like the um, horror of this movie um so it's like yeah that idea of like sound and interpretation of that sound um is yeah I, we haven't even talked about this movie like we've like i think intentionally like not really talked about it like that much um yeah and i think we're probably right on the same page with a lot of it so the general premise of the movie is um, Toby Jones is a middling British sound engineer who's renowned for, um, I wouldn't say his talent, but like his exactness or like his the fastidious nature of his work um, that's hired by this uh, sort of like... Um, hammer-esque italian film studio that's famous for uh horror films to do the sound work on their newest film um if you've seen starry eyes which we talked about in the first like verses mm. it's a very similar idea to that studio where this like it's this almost like mythical like production group that does these um cult movies and toby jones isn't necessarily a guy who's big into doing horror but it's it's work and you get the impression that he hasn't had much steady work you know so he's just happy to have the job um from the very beginning to your point like what you just said there's a feeling of isolation because he doesn't speak italian sometimes doesn't even feel like the italians in the movie are speaking the same italian to each other um he's basically like kind of misdirected away from the idea that he you know, they won't reimburse him for his plane ticket. They're really rude to him. Um, there's a lot of really weird, like, unprofessionalism that happens, like, around him, and it's very disturbing to him. Um, but then he's also a really good, unreliable narrator, but not to the point that you know initially that he is an unreliable narrator. Like, you come to learn it almost alongside him. It's like, I actually had a really good parallel to this movie recently, but I can't remember what it was. Like, there's a movie that I think you and I have talked about recently where 
the main character is actually the villain of the movie. And you don't learn that until later in. And Toby Jones's character here is kind of the same way where there's the dark implication that there's something worse about his life or like in his life that he's not willing to like face up to immediately. And is kind of like hitting, hiding it um, while on this business trip or whatever. Um, and I think that's like one of the greatest strengths of the movie is just that uncertainty on your part as the viewer as to whether or not the character that you're seeing, like, especially I would say maybe after the first like 35 minutes of this movie, like you really start to not trust Toby Jones as a character. Um, but the sound in the movie is amazing. I mean, that's like the whole point of it. Um, and for a movie that really bases its horror on sound, you know, and even like kind of the fourth wall breaking aspect from the filmmaking perspective of watching Toby Jones like imitate the stabbing death of someone by like what, like jamming a knife into a cabbage or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, um, like all those little things that I find fascinating. Like the chain to the chainsaw is a blender, like yeah. yeah. Like all that stuff, just and forcing him repeatedly to film this um rape slash death scene mm -hmm. um of a nun i guess she is or a um not neophyte but whatever you call it like, neophyte maybe is the right word um oh and an initiate or whatever yeah like these girls from this like um mm -hmm. convent like all of it's just brilliant and it's really well filmed mm -hmm. and yeah. I think well, well there's a there's a large part of this movie that does deal with the idea of gendered violence. Um right. you know like not only in terms of the film that he's making but also in the way that the actresses are treated um throughout And the, also the that's a large of, right the implication of how they've been treated like off screen too and right. and like casting type stuff right right how the producer like approaches female mm -hmm. talent in general right and that does tie into the end of like as he becomes like i mean that paranoia eventually leads him to be complicit right in the same oh, yeah. actions um which i don't know right now rings a little true to me like the idea that like you know feeling isolated like creates a state that people can do bad things you know like people become more prickly i mean like i i can certainly like see that and so yeah he ends up like basically joining in with that group and how they treat women by the end because like he he's the one that and and the other character that's with him like once like is kind of a little bit like taken aback by the idea that he wants to like turn up that sound on her to where it's like you know he forces her to legitimately scream um and tortures right. her basically um so here's here's my question because this is I saw this movie when it came out. It was, um, I was super drawn in by the trailers for this movie. And then it was one of those things like where I, um, I can't remember how I found it to watch, but I found it like pretty quickly after it was released on DVD. Um, actually probably by that point I was running it like physically through Netflix maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I've watched it a couple of times since. Do you think that, um toby jones so by the end of this i don't know if i want to reveal too much so by the end of this movie there's things that happen that make you think that he's not just some 
traveler from Britain that he's like actually much more complicit in the things that have happened than what you're initially led to believe, right? Would you right. agree with that? I agree. Do you think that the first part of the movie is him deluding himself into thinking that it's not his fault what's happening to these people? And by the end of the movie, you as the viewer get to see that he's probably, if not the worst, at least like just as bad as like Santini and the other ones. And that he's not the character that you thought he was. That was just what he wishes he was. I think that's a possibility, but I don't think it's answerable. Um, there, there's too many things that aren't. I think have like direct answers. Like so, so the the ticket itself is is one of them. Like you know, like the, he wants reimbursed for that plane ticket. Right. And you come to find out that there was no plane ticket apparently. Right, it's a flight that never happened or whatever. Right, but and you get no explanation for that whatsoever. So, you we can either believe that he's there. There is some sort of like larger plot at play that he's not aware of uh, from the people in the studio and stuff like that, like right. Santini and stuff like that, or he's an unreliable narrator and. Um, but I think that the brilliant thing about the movie is that you can take it for basically that the the plot, you know, like, you know, Santini possibly being some sort of whatever, like, you know, like either cult leader or maybe even otherworldly being or like right. you know, whatever yeah. it is. I, I think you could see it is like um, Gilderoy going insane kind of slowly. Right. Or, yeah. Or you could see it from the perspective that you just said is that I, I think that is just as likely is that he's been bullshitting himself for the first half of the movie and, you know, he wants to, like, believe that he is an outsider to all of this. The other and thing, too, that I... An insider in all of this, and that's why the flight never happened is because he's always, right. you know, he's always been an insider to all this. So that's the other thing, too, and I, I actually kind of thought this watching it recently, um, especially after we watched, you know, we've watched Mulholland Drive, and um, mm -hmm. it's it's been less than a couple of years since we watched a, a bunch of other Lynch stuff, including the third season of Twin Peaks. Right. Is it maybe that it's just like a time loop of something, of some kind? Mm -hmm. Like maybe even like a purgatorial, like punishment for something that he did? Because I think it gets implied that he might have murdered his mother, too. Right at one point, right. and yeah. that he's just like pretending that he didn't buy these old letters from her from like, mm -hmm. like really like a long time ago, and he's maybe just stuck in this repeating loop of like, like 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 you said, like abuse of like women and like hiding from himself and hiding the truth, and then the realization that he's a monster, and then it just kind of repeats itself. Yeah. Um, over and over, including the fact that, like, at one point he's completely fluent in Italian, you know, from being a character that spoke none of the language, whatever, mm -hmm. right? Like, weeks before right. the movie's chronology, sure. But remember, um, at the same time, if, if all of that is supposed to be legit, it's like, what is it that he eats at the end that, like, Santini feeds him? Like, um, he eats that shit, so it's like. At that point, is that the point where, like, that's the point he changes, right? So it's like, yeah. is that representative of some sort of plot that has to do with something supernatural or something like that? Or is that kind of like, you know, the realization for him that he's 
you know right like almost almost some sort of like black mass like eucharist or something like right that. right anti-eucharist i don't know what you would call yeah, that yeah. um but yeah the reason that this movie makes an avant-garde list um number one the sound design in this movie is just mind-blowing like the the score and the sound effects and just the ambient noise is amazing um i love the way it's filmed like it feels dirty and mysterious but also like has some really clean and beautiful cinematography to it and i really like you know i mean we we we've talked about this probably a dozen times on the podcast but like that whole like proto proto lynchian like feel of just uncertain towards right. what you're watching and the fact that you can have multiple interpretations of it upon like different viewings i think it's um i think it's a really like criminally underrated film um i think it's a lot more important to the horror genre than people give it credit for um and i wish that i wish it was like just a little more accessible so you could like show it to more people right um but again like i think that people were really disappointed because it looked like it was something it wasn't um yeah and the trailers were out for it so i can see why like well, it's funny of- when i was doing research strickland and i think he's being a little coy when he when he says this but strickland's said multiple times that he never saw this as a horror movie um that he saw it as a movie about a drama about workplace politics um that just so happens that um <laughs> the, the drama about workplace politics is a is a fucking horror movie um so i think he's being a little coy when he says that but at the same time, um, I do see what he's saying. It's like, you know, like, but uh, you're saying that the way it was advertised made it look like a horror movie, and that's what does Oh, 100%. Was the advertising, yeah. yeah. I can't remember what I saw. I saw a trailer for this in front of something back in, like, 2011, maybe. Some horror movie that I saw. And I thought, man, I cannot wait. This. It was probably on, like, a DVD that I bought and it was like advertised in front of that because I can't imagine I saw this advertised in a theater but so excited to see it like because I really like Toby Jones and it just looks like super scary to the point where I think maybe I was subtly disappointed the first time because it wasn't but I like I said I've seen it a few times since then and I I really come to appreciate it and I think it, it really is like a pretty important um part of that like new wave like postmodern horror you know that includes mm-hmm. like it follows and hereditary and the babadook and like right. all those other um indie art house horror movies mandy whatever like all that stuff so right yeah no i i really enjoyed watching it um and um yeah i and then you and apparently you, I don't remember it. I thought I came to the realization the night that I was watching it that like things that have audio um are always intrigue me. And then you told me that you said this on the podcast already. So um, yeah, when we talked about Bastard Night, I made the point and you were like, Oh, what does that mean? Right. Yeah. Know thyself, human, I right. guess. Right. Um, or get or get thee to a nunnery, maybe. But yeah, no, this is, I thought it was a fantastic movie, and I think there's a lot going on here that I don't think I've still fully taken in or comprehended in, uh, at times. Is this like, Prime or Shutter that this is free on? No, it wasn't on, it wasn't free anywhere for me, like, I didn't oh. see any, anywhere. Uh, this is a free for Frank movie then, somewhere. Gotcha. Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe Showtime or Stars or something, but it's definitely, maybe. Like, 
Yeah. No, is it? No, it's definitely yes. You're right. It's one of those because um, yeah. When I went on Prime, it was like if you subscribe, like you can watch this, and it was like so. It's definitely like a thing where it's yeah. like stars, or so you have to be subscribed to something. So, but definitely worth your time and worth watching. And yeah, yeah, um, yep, absolutely. All right, so that was not bad. Um, good list this week. I think I really enjoyed watching all of these movies again. I didn't really enjoy watching The God, and I'm not going to lie. But it was, like, kind of nostalgic to watch it. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else to go over with this list. So, um, yeah. All right. So, next week, we have... Uh, we're going to be watching the original Child's Play. Um, the first watch with Previous first watch um, participants are Ryan Wellmaker and Michael Pluzzo, Um, which that should be fun, I think. Um, how long has it been since you've seen the original Child's Play, Frank? Ooh, 10 years? Oh, Maybe really? a little more. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's certain, certain movies that I'll watch, I don't know, like every, every year. So I, if, if, if we can talk for another like five or 10 minutes or so, um, every year around October, I will watch usually 20 to 30 horror movies in the course of the month with the idea that I'm going to do like a quote unquote 31 days of horror. And I never managed to make it, um, you know, cause life gets in the way or whatever, or I watch like fucking like 40 movies. Um, but child's play is one of those ones where every couple of years, like five or six years or so, like I'll watch it just because I have some nostalgic affection for it. Um, but I, I would say 10 years plus. I was living on Button Buttonwoods the last time I watched it because I have a really clear memory of like gotcha. laying on my couch. Um, there's a couple scenes early on. So when's the last time you've seen Child's Play? Me? Yeah. I would estimate 1989. <laughs> Maybe 1990. There's I've a couple it, of scenes. I, I think I've seen it twice, but I think I saw it like twice in very quick order. So like within a year of like uh, it coming out on VHS. So it's been a long time. There's a couple of scenes early on in the movie that are really memorable to me. Um, and I have like really clear recollections of like laying on that couch and like watching that. Um, it's funny. I it remember was... watching Child's Play. I remember like where I was sitting in the living room of you know the house that i grew up in for most of my life like watching it like um but yeah it's been a long time yeah. i've never considered child's play to be a particularly scary movie but i think child's play is a much more effective movie than maybe it gets credit for hmm. just from like a filmmaking standpoint and i'll be interested to see how the them especially if like you've seen anything from like bride of chucky or seed of chucky or you know what i mean like right when he became more of a quote unquote like horror icon, yeah, you know, that was featured prominently in WCW in like <laughs> seven. <laughs> um, oh, that was, was that that wasn't that early, was it? 97, was 98, maybe mm-hmm. it's Halloween Havoc from one of those years. Yeah, it's probably Havoc 98. Yeah, it's I, I want to hope that it was 99, but you're probably right, it's probably 98. I mean, I feel about and I don't want to like whatever give too much away, but I'll just say this like. 
in closing about Child's Play, like I feel about the original Child's Play in a lot of the same way I do about the original Hellraiser and the original Halloween, hmm. where as movies that were created in a vacuum just to be like a standalone thing, there's a lot more interest in watching that than as the Genesis point to a series that was made to bring people into theaters and push merchandise and whatever. Right. Like, I think like Freddie and Jason are horror icons in the sense where you almost need to watch like all of their, you don't need to, but like watching all of their movies makes it makes them more interesting. Whereas I think that there's certain horror characters like the Cenobites and Chucky and Michael Myers that are just more interesting in one iteration and you don't really need more than that for them to have value. That's interesting. I'll be I'll be I'm very interested to see it again. I um you know I think you become because of like shit like feuding with Rick Steiner and WCW and um you know like all the countless sequels and you know the female Chucky doll thing and Jennifer Tilly and like you know all right. that kind of stupid shit like you know I, you lose sight eventually of like what that original movie was I think a lot of people probably do sure. um so yeah I'll be interested to watch it again maybe with fresh eyes like it's been so long did who did you so when you saw the WCW thing were you watching WCW then mm, Nitro or well, whatever Thunder but yes but by that point, I pretty quickly became primary WWF and like secondary WCW. So it's like when, because Orion would come over to my house and we would watch it together. And in the living room where we were at, WWF would be on. In my bedroom, WCW would be on. And we would each take turns going in to see like what was going on in my bedroom, like on WCW and coming back out and watching WWF. So um, I saw it. Um, and I want to say that I, he'll remember better than I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I, he'll remember better than I do, but I want to say that he maybe it came out and told me what was happening. <laughs> Um, I only I only ask because I'm always curious, like who anyone thought because so as some premise, and we actually should just do talk about this next. Uh, week, we so. should, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Anyway, yeah, so should. that that that'll that, that'll be because I don't I don't know if Bledsoe's ever I don't know if Bledsoe knows that exists. So I want to I want to find out if Bledsoe's seen that. I want to make him watch it and get his reaction to it. Yeah. But yeah, awful. Like. I have to like find the clips of that, like kind of like maybe cut together or something, so like Butso can like watch like the, like you know whatever like some sort of like seven minute like you know overview of all that shit like with Chucky. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like RoboCop, you know, like being in WCW, which I think you weren't watching wrestling at that point, or at least WCW no, was... you weren't watching at that point. It was like before you started watching WCW, but um, yeah, like. That was within a year of me starting to watch wrestling and um, like religiously watch wrestling and fucking RoboCop is like showing up and like ripping down cage doors um, to help Sting. And it's like as a nine year old who like, you know, thought like maybe it could be real, like it's possible right. <laughs> RoboCop being at um, 
Capital Combat 90 uh, ruined all that for me. So um, I've, I've thought it was fake for a long fucking time now. <clears throat> because of robocop and like that kind of shit like chucky like to me is just like inexcusable in terms of like a sense of kayfabe because like how many how many how much did that ruin so many things for so many young fans by having right, especially because if there was anything that you liked about the like personally anything i liked about wcw at that point in time mm-hmm. was the idea that it was like less about like gimmicks and whatever and just sure. more about the idea of like almost like an insider's look at the business while still having like that whatever you know yeah what wcw always had was it had a sense of possible reality because it was people with names and less about like you know and even by the time you got to like that time period you still had people like the fucking headbangers um you know and shit like that and there was these gimmicks like around even though it was going more towards the attitude error stuff um yeah but yeah i agree like wcw was always more real to some degree and then you had shit like chucky like you know showing up trying to start feuds yeah so yeah we'll definitely talk about with fucking the dog face gremlin of all people you you always say that rick steiner though you hate rick steiner that's fine you hate fairy tales and fun. So I guess it makes this even touche. Right? Yeah. Um, all right. So now that we've finished it off talking about wrestling, um, off of the avant-garde movie list, um, we'll, um, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. So we have that coming up next week with the first watch. Um, and then in uh, the last uh, week of the month, Frank will be back with... Um, uh, maybe the freshest five ever um, in the sense of like how recent some of the movies uh, could be on the first ever uh, genre specific fresh five horror movies um, at the end of I, the month. I believe everything will have been in the past uh, year. Yeah. Everything is like 2020 or 2019 maybe at most. Yeah. Right. Cool. All right. So okay. that's what we have coming up. Um, and other than that, have a great week. Yep, have a good night.